and welcome to the Trash Tapes podcast as part of the Enigmatic Productions Network. If you love bad cinema and incredible deep dives into cult film, then you have come to the right place. So if you like what you hear and want to support us, you can do so by donating some funds to our Buy Me A Coffee website, along with the ACAR supporter feature. All of these can be found in the description below. And now, on with the show. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Movie buffs and cinephiles, and welcome to another episode of the Not So Trash Reviews. My name is Johan Chapal, your host and your true guide into navigating the dark side of the moon. On this episode, we'll be doing something a little bit different. As I began to edit down this wonderful chat with filmmaker Sophie Black about our chosen film, it became hard to trim down anything, since I found every twist and turn to provide so much extra insight. So what you're about to hear is relatively untouched. We will be exploring the multi-linking themes that connect vampirism to cinema, using Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive as our subject. But how do we do that? Well, it does mean that we need to try and define the monstrous. Horror as a concept has always been about humanity fighting against our fears, our urges, our sins through the embodiment of the monstrous. There are plenty of academic texts that explore this from themes of man versus nature, man versus technology, man versus the world. But each monster's theme have some sort of grounded representation. Werewolves are seen as man battling their fear of losing control over their own actions. Zombies represent the fear of seeing ourselves as the enemy. Mummies are literally the past coming back to attack us. But what of vampires? Writer Stacey Abbott explains that vampirism through the centuries has been ever-changing. Stories and the myths have morphed to reflect on the fears of being human and being part of the human experience. Using the enhanced immortal human to push boundaries and examine issues such as time, death, temptation, power, queerness, mortality, and most importantly, it's a self-reflection. Unlike most monsters, Vampire as a premise, while still following a typical set of rules, has always been adaptable to put a mirror on ourselves or others and see if we are just as monstrous as they are. If we can see our reflection, that is. Compare Bela Lugosi's Dracula to the Blade movies or Lost Boys to Twilight, or The Hunger to Nosferatu. They all have their own take and project a unique examination on the human condition. So with that, I want to ask you, the listeners, what do you think vampirism represents here? The movie has so many layers, it's hard to pin down just one, allowing for a more open interpretation. So let's see if we can start a bigger conversation. Now, Let's begin examining our goth rock tale with myself and Sophie Black. This is Only Lovers Left Alive.
and everything is probably only going to make people more interested in your music. Yeah. What a drag. My sister's looking for us. Shouldn't she be sleeping in a coffin somewhere? I'm really, really hungry. Could you smell it all the way from L.A.? We're gonna have so much fun together. We gotta go. Right now. Come in. Is that the really good stuff? Precisely. Typo. Negativo. Thank God it's great. And yours. I'm joined by Sophie. Hi there. Hi. How are you doing? I'm pretty good, thank you. It's snowing here, even though it's March, but apart from that. <laughs> it's very weird weather, I'm not going to lie. It's snowing and then it's sunny and then yeah. it's windy and then it's snowing again and then it's sunny again and it's all within the span of five hours. Yeah, it's not cold, but it's hailing. Weirdness. <laughs> it's just, or it's the world colliding. Everything's gone backwards. And you know what? It's kind of appropriate weather yes. because everything's all weird and weird and confusing, which is kind of how, uh, leading into the movie we're going to talk about today, it has, there's a lot of layers with this. So, you know, having weird, bizarre weather just kind of adds to it, I think. Um, <laughs> so, there's an actual reason why I got you on. Now, obviously, you and I have been friends for a while, which is mm-hmm. all good. And also the fact that have I would I've been wanting to get sort of a female director perspective on this film. But also, we got to see this movie in a very unique way. Yes. And it, in a way that I think everyone should see this film is the way that we first saw it. It was quite an unusual experience, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. It was it, it was over at the quad in the... What was that little smaller place that isn't the actual, um, like the actual cinema? The box cinema. The box yeah. with wine and sofas. It was very, very comfy. Yes, because there was no seats left because we got in far too late, didn't we? So the only seat left was a sofa that was right in front of the screen. So the only way to watch the film was lying back on the mm. sofa luxuriously, sort of lying down and looking up and watching it with glasses of wine on the go, like red wine. And there's a lot of lying down shots in this film. So it was like we were imitating what was on screen. Um, it actually, yeah, it was very immersive if you really think about it, because, yeah. you know, the way they drink blood in this movie and how they react, just lying down on the sofa, head back, just yeah. letting everything wash over exactly is almost the in the same we way were. how we watched yeah. it. Exactly the same. <laughs> apart from it wasn't blood, obviously, but apart from that, well, it was the same. <laughs> it wasn't blood, but, you know, uh, I've got some red wine. I should have got some of that to start off this evening. <laughs> yes, I, yeah, uh, everyone watches this film, uh, yeah, watch it with a glass of wine. <laughs> obviously, we got to see this movie together, but what what what, lo- what lures you about this movie? I mean, when we first watched it, we I, I saw it from the trailers and just thought it was, like, instantly cool and hip, and mm. also it had Tom Hiddleston in it. Um, which um, which at the time, you know, he was just known for Loki and he looked really cool and I just kind of lured into that. What lured you into this movie? I, ooh, I've just always been a massive, like, vampire fan. This is one of the better vampire films, I have to say. Hmm. There's a lot of vampire films out there that are trash and I love all of them and I don't really care. Um, and I, if there's a vampire <laughs> film out there, I've probably seen it, but this is also one that I would put on the list of actually genuinely good films as well as being a vampire film i as many awkward teenagers i devoured Anne rice 
when I was mm. in my teens and just related hard to, to, to that writing and felt so seen. And yeah, so I think that's probably where it started. I think Buffy probably started my love affair of vampires in the 90s, but then yeah. later on Anne Rice and just, oh, I was obsessed with the vampire Lestat. I used to carry it everywhere with me um so yeah yeah my mum used to be very much into Anne Rice as well Mm. and she used to and she used to love all the Lestat books and stuff like that as well so yeah 100% and that's the thing I kind of got with this movie later on as we're watching it again it's it has it has that Anne Rice feel to it 100% in the same way that Lestat was very reflective on life he was a very he was a very melancholy vampire and mm. was spent his entire kind of there's many many books and a lot of it was all about looking back at a world that isn't around anymore and and not belonging in the world and remembering what it's like to be human and and this film does exactly the same thing so this is probably the closest to an Anne Rice vampire film that we've had in decades so yeah because the closest one would have been Interview with a Vampire yes. wouldn't it Yes, which is fantastic. And then Queen of the Damned, you know, again, I watched it and I loved it for very different reasons. I don't think I'm not saying it's a good film, but Queen of the Damned, I have seen multiple times. <laughs> what, I mean, I mean, what do you talk about? It has it has corn in it. So <laughs> And Stuart Townsend, Townsend who is topless for the majority of the film. I mean it's yeah. fine. <laughs> One of the things that lured me with that movie as well, it has a sort of Anne, uh, that sort of Anne Rice feel, but mm-hmm. also got this, uh, it feels like it's not approaching vampirism in the same way as other movies are, but still following the traditions of vampirism. Yes. Yeah, it's not, they're not hunters. They're not, you know, they're mm. not monstrous beings. They're very reclusive and they're very quiet. And I mean, they don't hunt in it unless they have to. It's... They, they're described in them like Tom Hiddleston described himself as a vegetarian vampire because they don't mm-hmm. kill humans they source blood in other ways and drink it through yeah. very decadent little glasses and you know it, it's they're not loud creatures that you know it's not a traditional Dracula that's luring people in and hunting and flying and you know there's great things at the moment with uh, what we do in the shadows and them um, flying mm. off to parks and as bats and hunting down um you know, hunting down their prey. These vampires aren't like that at all. They have people coming round and they don't want to see them. They, they shut them out and rather than hunting them down, they, they try and hide from humans. They're almost scared of humans in many ways. Yeah, it, 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 well, the, what I love about in the movie that they don't recall, they don't call them humans, they call them yes. zombies. Um, like they're like they're 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 the dead ones floating around and not living their best lives and ruining the planet. Mm. While uh, well, especially Adam has a real thing against them, uh, which it, I think I think it's almost like a reflection on them a bit because the idea is like this: you you are as a species should be so good and yet you are not. Yeah. Why is that? Uh, what it made me think of more than anything is it doesn't really feel like a vampire film so much as a film about old people being dismaying of the young. <laughs> in many ways, it's just like elders looking down at the young people and be like, what are you doing? Why are you like this? And and just, you know, missing the times gone by. It feels more like when I used to speak to my granddad and he'd moan about mm. what happened to the government. That's kind of how it feels <laughs> watching this film, even though they, they look young and dishy all the time. Like, it's, it's very much... A reflective on the current generation. The only difference is that the older generation are vampires and the newer generation are humans slash called zombies. So it, it feels very much a... This is people at the end of their life looking back with nostalgia. I love what you've done with the place. I love your newest music too. It made me think of when you gave that string quintet to Schubert, remember? Mm. And he presented it as his own. Yeah, but I asked him to do that. And I only gave him the adagio. Just to put something out there. Is that why you released this new stuff? I needed a reflection. See if it would echo back before before what? Oh, Adam. 
You always have the convenience of the zombies to blame when you get low. What about all your heroes? I don't have heroes. No? What about your blessed scientists? The scientists? Well, look at what they've done to them. Pythagoras slaughtered. Galileo imprisoned. Copernicus ridiculed. Poor old Newton pushed into secrecy and alchemy. Tesla destroyed. And his beautiful possibilities completely ignored. And they're still bitching about Darwin. Still. So much for the scientists. And now they've succeeded in contaminating their own fucking blood, never mind their water. Yeah, well, if we're gonna have a litany of all the zombie atrocities of history, we'll be here till the sun comes up. Half the time, the movie is showing off that everything they have learned, all the good things are older for them. They're like, like, they're, like some of their big, big moments, all their conversations about times of the past. But they also have moments where they were showing like their own strengths and their wills of the current day in a way. Maybe it's, if you are going by nostalgia, maybe the idea is, yeah, nostalgia is cool, but nostalgia is also holding you back from mm. progressing. Well, that's the interesting point because... Adam is the one who is obsessed with his old technology. Eve is a bit more, you know, accepting of technology and she's freer. Adam's the one who, who is, he's very much holed up with his stuff. He's reclusive, he's mm. surrounded by stuff. He doesn't want to let go of the past, even though it'd be so much easier to connect to the, the grid, as he calls it, and connect to the human electricity. He's like, no, I'm going to do it the old way and power it myself. And he's determined to, there's a beautiful scene where they have a phone call and they want to see each other, and Eve immediately gets her iPhone out, and she can quickly see him, no problem. Because he refuses to let go of the past, he then has this really complicated thing where he has to connect one wire to another device, to another device, to a TV, in order to see her. And she's seen him in two seconds by getting her iPhone out. He's determined to wire up an old TV in order to see her. And so it's like the past is holding him back. She's out there, she's seeing the world, and she's happy to be out there and free. She's a, she's a very free spirit, and he's... He's trapped by his love of the past and, and not accepting that actually the future can be good. And that's why, again, she's very positive about the world as a whole and he's sick of it and almost to the with suicidal tendencies. And so maybe it says a lot of the past is great, but you can't live in it. You can't like just be bogged down by the past. You need to embrace the now as well. And that's what Eve does. And that's why they're so different. Yeah. Adam. Eve. Hey, darling. Hang on a second. I want to see you. Oh, I want to see you too. What is that? That you scrabbling about with all your wires and knobs, my old pack rat? Yeah, one second. I just. I just. Hello. There you are. Hello, sweetheart. You know what's interesting with Eve is that you know what's even more interesting is Eve in in, in comparison because he you're Adam and Eve and the ages are different actually because Eve is supposed to be two thousand years old right and Adam is supposed to be five hundred so I think what's interesting is that Eve may have already had this phase <laughs> about five hundred years ago that's a good right? point. And she's gone past it. She's grown up. She's done the thing. It says, you know what? If we keep wallowing in the past, like she does say, like you, you like you've been li you've lived around for five hundred years and you still don't get it. Yeah. You know, um, it's as as if she. I mean, how free she is to the point where, um, what's interesting is is that at the very beginning of the movie, they they are a married couple. They've been married for about five hundred years. Married three times as well. <laughs> three weddings. They they talk about, don't they? Three weddings. Yeah. Three weddings. But they're not together at the beginning of the movie. And so that makes it interesting as a dynamic. Yeah. Like, is this is this them on their break? Is it just her exploring the world and doing her own thing? 
and then leaving Adam to wallow? Is Adam just being stubborn and refusing to go with her? What's the dynamic there in this? The whole, I think, the whole central point of this movie, even through the even the the idea that they're vampires, just adds a dynamic. Mm. But it's really about analyzing their relationship and seeing whether or not this relationship is a healthy one, or a romantic one, or a good one. The age gap thing is, is a very good point, not just with the characters but the actors. I mean, Tilda Swinton's. 60 now and doesn't look it she's just the perfect person to play a vampire because she is <laughs> you just can't age her by looking at her but she is a lot older than tom hiddleston at the time of filming as well and yeah. their relationship she's very maternal towards him she's got a younger mm. sister who i'm sure we'll get on to who looks a lot younger than her and she's super super maternal to both of them to her sister and to her husband the older character of John Hurt, she looks after him. She's very sweet to him. She's almost kind of mothering them all, which is interesting, and mothering her husband and, you know, coaxing him and calling him sweetheart and that kind of thing. But it's also like she really needs to persuade him to leave the house. So you do get the feeling that, you know, he possibly held her back from having the life that she wants. And on the one hand, it's maybe she's, he's not good for her in that way. He doesn't want to leave his stuff. When she finally persuades him to go, she has to say to him, like, you know, he doesn't want to leave his instruments. And she says, you know, I'll get you new instruments. There's instruments out there. He is a hoarder. He is a proper hoarder. Yes. He doesn't want to leave his stuff behind. And so where she has basically nothing on her. She's a nomadic character and she has has her books that she loves, but she'd happily leave some behind as well. He can't Mm. leave anything and is held back by his stuff. So he's very set in his ways and... She really has to persuade him to leave the house. So in, in that way, I feel like he's kind of bad for her. But she knows it and just gives him space. But what I noticed, the, the I, I do think they're a very loving couple. I think they're very, very sweet to each other and they balance each other out well. I mean, they are yin and yang, as, as I'm sure we'll come on to. The one bit I found a bit off was, and I don't remember it first time round, but when I the first time they had that phone call, Eve says to him, oh, you're making me do this again. Did that, that bit stick out for you yes. when he's like all depressed and she acts like he's punishing her and he's doing this to her even though he's the depressed one that's always an alarm bell like oh what are you doing you're making me give up stuff again you know it's like he's not making you do anything he's depressed it's he needs help so and it's more and it's also the idea again going back to they're, if they are a married couple and they're in love why have why do they start this so apart mm. and also we get to talk about John Hurt a little bit, who is an absolute wonder oh, in this movie. Um, being uh, being uh, Chris Marlowe, basically, who is the ghost, uh, the alleged ghostwriter of William Shakespeare, <laughs> and the way the way she talks to John Hurt about Adam is like it's almost a little bit like a nuisance. Yes, a little bit. It's like, uh, this is happening again. And then John Hurt saying, like, you know, it's like, the, it's like, why are you going back to the suicidal romantic scoundrel? Yeah, it's a scoundrel. We don't see any bad behaviour from Adam at all, apart from the fact that he's reclusive. So it's, it's this constant, like, blaming of his behaviour and he's the one. I don't know if it's just maybe it was written that he was more of a scoundrel and he was causing problems for Eve, but the way it looks is just he's not calling her to come back. He's trying to wallow and she's going, oh, he's making me do it. You know, it's it's interesting. It's proper victim blaming when I don't think he's actually doing anything. <laughs> so. I know I don't have to say this to you, but please be cautious. I couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear it if something happened to you. Frankly, I don't understand why you don't live in the same place because you can't live without each other. Anyway, give my regards to that suicidally romantic scoundrel. Do you really think he is? Scoundrel? (laughs) Well, let's hope he's just romantic. Even so, I mainly blame Shelley and Byron and some of those French arseholes he used to hang around with. Oh, I wish that I'd met him before I wrote Hamlet. He would have provided the most perfect role model imaginable. That's how the relationship starts at the beginning. Mm. When the relationship grow, when when they go back together into in the into their home, I feel like the relationship rekindles again mm. completely, and they realize that what they actually do for each other. 
Um, even though she does, she is very maternal and kind of likes the idea of almost babysitting, mm. almost kind of likes the idea of having something to take care of because when she's in Tangiers at the beginning, she's a, she, 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 she looks a bit bored, to be honest. Mm. Like she has, she seems to have a good time and she's talking to John Hurt and, and having the, the fun times there, just spending her time reading books. But she seems a bit bored because she has nothing to take care of. She has only herself. Yeah. Uh, but when she go back there, she does have something to take care of. In fact, she technically has two things to take care of. Um, and then there's a there's an inciting incident that kind of rekindles them back together and almost puts them in equal playing field. Yes. There's no superiority in that relationship anymore. The dynamic has changed again. And they're both, I would argue, on equal pegging. She's still the one pulling the strings and making him go, though. He doesn't want to go and she's making him go. True. He doesn't want to go out dancing, and she says, "I wouldn't mind going." It's she's definitely leading the pace. And just before I forget, I do have a good point about pace coming up actually. But just before we go off the idea of her having nothing to care for, I noticed for the first time watching yesterday, and I had never noticed before. It's a blink and you miss it moment when they're walking mm. up the stairs to her flat. They go past piles and piles of books. You literally yes. need to pause it. There are child's shoes on the stairs. Wow. There's little tiny toddler shoes. So could it have been a fact that maybe it shows maybe how long has she been there for? And even then is the idea that maybe perhaps maybe she maybe she has babysat. Maybe yeah. she does keep they're, an eye on the kids. They're modern looking <laughs> shoes. It makes you think, did she have kids at one point? Did she steal kids? Whose shoes are they? And it, mm. it's a blink and miss it moment. And it just gets, it, there's a lot of... Did she ever want a kid? The way she is with everyone is very, very maternal. So there's a story there, I think. She's been a vampire for 2,000 years, right? Looking into vampire mythos, it doesn't seem that, unless you unless you really want to include Twilight into the mix, they can't have kids, can't they? No, I think it... There, yeah, there have been some that do... It mm. tends to be, yeah, if the human is impregnated. That goes back to the whole sort of mixing up vampires and succubus. There's more recent versions, for example, um, American Horror Story Hotel has vampires in it that, that have yeah. babies. But it tends to be more succubus impregnate vampires cannot conceive. And that is why, again, going back to Anne Rice, that is why child vampires are made. And ha- and also in that, in, in, in like Interview with a Vampire, it shows how, what a terrible idea yeah. that is. <laughs> um, because you then have a full-grown woman in the body of a 10-year-old, which is terrifying, you know, because you can never really explore what you've lost yeah. at that point. The fact that Eve's sister, Ava, again, I'm sure we'll come on to her, she looks so yeah. much younger than her. And there's times when she a said, lot. calls her her sister, and it's like an inverted commas type scenario. Mm. So, And Ava dresses like she's from the 60s. So yeah. she clearly is a younger vampire. Eve is 2,000 years old. So again, where did that sister, in quotes, come from? There's a, come yeah, from. there's a lot to because say there. Because I think it literally said at one point, uh, talking about Ava a little bit, that there was an inciting incident that said they haven't seen, because of that, they haven't seen each other for about 87 years, yeah. which is a thing in Paris, which would have been like somewhere like in the 1930s or something like that. Mm. So imagine that as it were. Imagine m- maybe the idea is that also looking at two different things here, looking back at nostalgia and the modern times, Ava represents modern times. Mm. And it's funny how you can look at how Eve is interested in it, but doesn't think the rambunctious nature is that. How Adam absolutely hates yes. it. She finds her an absolute <laughs> nuisance. She finds the idea of the modern times being ridiculous. The idea that you're not supposed to be drinking modern blood because it's contaminated. And I mean, the I noticed one thing about the blood drinking thing. Obviously, a lot of times the blood is is designed to look like they're getting high on drugs when they take it. Yes. And the idea that, yeah, it's contaminated now and there is drugs in it actually makes them sick. Out of Jim Jarmusch's movies, I feel, this is probably one of the most accessible, I feel. Maybe Ghost Dog is the second most accessible. (laughs) And then maybe going to, uh, maybe that Western he did with, uh, that sort of semi-Western he did with Johnny Depp might be another one. But uh, 
it's not his movies have a very particular tone and it might be a stopping gap for some people mm. but this one's the most accessible because i feel like even with the sort of slight hipstery pretentious air to it <laughs> there's a lot you can dive into and especially with the humor there's so many funny lines in this film that instantly make me mm. giggle do you want? Uh, I mean, we were texting some of them over over the night before. <laughs> we we were creasing in the cinema as well, weren't we? Which ones are your favourites? I mean, there's moments as well. There's the bit where they pull out the lollipops from the freezer. The blood <laughs> lollipops. Yeah. These these really sophisticated, serious, depressive characters. I mean, uh, Empire described them as undead guardian readers which I think is brilliant. <laughs> and then suddenly in the middle of a, a chess scene where they're talking about Byron, she's like, ah, undead lollipops, type O negative, you know, out of the freezer and then licking these lollies. And it's like, it's so silly. And I always find it quite funny as well. Like they've only just discovered this. Like yeah. Adam has only just discovered this. And it's like, off, have you not tried? <laughs> too modern for him he has to have his freezer off like no i'm just having a funny thought that lollies are too are too are too modern for him he says oh that freezer doesn't work and, and eve says it does i've just plugged it in like he's refusing to acknowledge it it's too modern he can't cope but oh no a freezer yeah. <laughs> but she plugs it in uh. and makes him some lollies and yeah that's brilliant there goes your queen playboy i know what you're doing you're trying to distract me now no more talking did you play chess with Byron? Eve, please. No, I want to know. You love telling me these things, and I love to hear them. So what was he like? Frankly, he was a pompous ass. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? And what about Mary? What was Mary Wollstonecraft like? Come on, tell me. What was she like? She was delicious. <laughs> I'll bet she was. Talking of delicious, I have a surprise, an experiment. That doesn't work, by the way. No, 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 it does. I plugged it in. What is that? Oh, negative. That's delicious. Blood on a stick. On a stick. That's not bad. Very refreshing, especially when you're in a hot spot. Checkmate, my darling. Eve, you're ruthless. You're brutal. I'm a survivor, baby. Is it time to talk about Ian? Because I think we both have a soft yes. spot for Ian as a character and how wonderful he is. He is a genuinely a very sweet character. He isn't technically... Okay, I, you 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 being a vampire fan, you know what it is. What is what's the name of when a human sort of is, is sort of like follows a vampire around, almost like they're mental. Generally, it's called familiar, which is a really derogative term familiar. because that's like a witch and her cat. But it has mm. become the familiar as a human. I mean, you get Guillermo in What We Do in the Shadows is a great example of a of the familiar. One thing I love about it, even in its all is in its non vampire way, there's a lot of tradition to it. Mm. So having imagine the idea in a weird way, it's Ian who is the you know, is is Adam's familiar. But also his manager. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But he really idolizes him and really wants him to do good. He's just being held back because he doesn't want to go out and gig and show off his music mm -hmm. when really he should do because it's weird and quirky and cool. Yeah. Anything else you might need, man? Uh, anything you want me to get you? There were some rock and roll kids here last night ringing my doorbell. Really? Yeah. How do they know where you live? No one fucking lives out here. I don't know, but it's not cool. We talked about this. I know, I know we did, man. It's not cool at all. It's completely fucked up. How would they... All right, I, I, I know. Don't worry. I'm going to spread some rumors very cautiously about where you might live, and I'll just throw them way off track. Whatever you need to do, please do it. Just take care of it. I'm on it. Okay. You know, for a zombie, you're all right. Thanks. I know you don't want to play live. I know you want to remain completely anonymous, but you being so reclusive and everything is probably only going to make people more interested in your music. Yeah. 
What a drag. Ian is the human. He's the only human character. I mean, we've got um, the, the doctor in it. I've forgotten the actor's name. He was in the Batman recently who played... Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright, Wright who's fantastic in an early role and has another... He has a hilarious throwaway line, like, saying that... Um, Tom Hiddleston's Adam character must be from California or something because he acts so weird. Um, but but apart from that, we don't really have a human presence. Ian is like, he represents no. the human. He wants to be like the vampires. He has long hair like Adam does. He puts on sunglasses like the vampires do and the vampires are putting on sunglasses to hide their scarily shiny eyes. Adam puts them on, yeah. um, sorry, Ian puts them on to be like Adam. Which again is very mm. much like all of us who dressed up as Lestat when we were teenagers, you know. And uh, yeah. so he's kind of he idolizes him, and it's very much the human presence in the film. And he's so warm and so loving, and just would do anything for Adam. And yeah, it's it's just a really sweet character. And Anton Yelchin, just yeah, he's amazing in it. Yeah. He nailed that, he and it's a, sh- it's a shame at his passing because you can see you can see all the kind of characteristics he was going to go from yeah. there. The uh, thing with Ian is he is very grounded and will follow whatever Adam says, but he is literally, like I said, the human center. So when uh, when when Ava drinks Ian, mm. which I'm spoiler which, warning, it's a. <laughs> It's it's a scene I did find hilarious <laughs> because the scene just goes over it's and says like, scene. "You drank Ian." You drank Ian. Ian. It's the funniest scene. And it's just so, and it should be because he's such a lovely character. I remember when we were in the cinema and we saw that Ian had been killed. And it was such, yeah. a, we've just felt really sad. And then, but then suddenly for mm. to go from this really sad moment, this really lovely, sweet character who doesn't, doesn't even want Adam's money he, to a degree. He's like, no, you give me enough money, you pay for my car. He's such a sweet character. And so it could be a devastating moment. And then it's the first really funny line of the film of, you drank Ian. Ow. Ow. Ew. This is the bloody 21st century. Oh, I didn't mean to. He was just so cute. And now I feel sick. What do you expect? He's from the fucking music industry. back off. You drank Ian. Adam. You drank Ian. Sorry. We can sort this. Ava is leaving. Just get off me, Ian. How many times? I don't mean to. Ow! Let go. So the fact that Ian is dead now, he has no way to connect with other with with things for for selfishly by the way things that he wants and the outside world like his music is is his instrumentation his music his hoarding the things he hoards yes. from things he wants he gets the it from guitars, Ian the, oh, the, 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 it's like a guitar lover's dream this film there's so many beautiful guitars mm. Ian gets for him yeah which he now can't yeah. get all he has now is Eve so again it's it's the inciting thing to make him leave but. While we're on the subject of, of Ian humour and spoilers, the funniest yes. moment, which is really shocking, because we were saying this isn't a monstrous film, this isn't a gory no. film, this isn't like a, this isn't loads. I mean, there's blood drinking, but there's not much killing. There is one like shockingly gory moment, and it is so shockingly gory <laughs> that even the characters are like, "What?" <laughs> when it happens, and that is Ian's demise. And the way they dispose of the body and the way that Tilda Swinton pauses and goes, well, that was certainly visual. (laughs) Don't even ask. Ready? That certainly was visual. That was a it's, visual. Yeah, it's like tongue in cheek almost. It's hyper humor at that point. I actually forgot how bad that was because because it's really not sure. like when you fro- <laughs> when when the body is thrown into what's considered basically an acid pit. Yes. Uh, you, you you see the first shot. You, you see a bit of sizzle. You go, oh okay, so they're just gonna mm. sink. It cuts again. <laughs> And you see skeleton, and you're going, Jesus! I wasn't expecting that second cutaway. No, yes. Skin disintegrating, and this is this really lovely guy who didn't want to die, and does, and then it's like it's so gory. But yeah, it's really funny. It's really 
fun. And it's like you don't want to laugh, but you do. And yeah. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Some of the humor is a little left field because I got surprised by it again. Watching it recently again, I was surprised how funny really it is. Funny. But it does help live, liven up a little bit of the genuinely somber mm movie because there's also there's a moment in the film which i feel also very poignant because we mentioned about depression Mm. uh the whole literally suicide scene where adam is contemplating suicide by literally getting a wooden bullet so he could actually get a stake through the heart to stake himself yeah yeah um and again the conversation is with eve almost shows again how this shouldn't eve should not be so surprised by this you know, Eve seems very surprised at the idea that he would want to do this. And it's like, why are you doing this? You don't get it. Like, you shouldn't be doing that. But it's like, you know, clearly something's wrong with this relationship here, where you don't see the red flags and the victim blaming, going back to the victim mm-hmm. blaming a bit, and having this really big scene of he, he comes back from the hospital being Dr. Faust, by the way. <laughs> Again, another little nod. To get the blood. Comes back gets confronted by this and saying, you know, I'm tired of every, I'm tired of all the people out there and everything else. And, you know, and feeling like the gun is less scary than the outside world. And it's interesting how Eve as a character doesn't connect that mm. for a while and just wants to almost distract him by saying, no, let us, let look, let's dance, let's love, let's do all the positives. Instead of actually going to the root of the problem, which is there's something wrong here with mm. him. And, it doesn't tackle it until the end when they're both in the exact same playing field. They both lost something. Yeah. I think he struggles with the idea of Eve dying more than himself. In that moment, they're both threatened. Earlier on when he buys the steak bullet, which is the most dramatic thing a vampire thing so has emo. ever done. It's the most so emo, emo thing yeah, I've ever seen. Yeah, I don't want to say it, but it really is. But when he has no problem with pointing the gun at himself, the moment he sees it, Eve point it at herself to demonstrate, he can't see that. You yeah. can't see that at all. So I think it's very... There is a lot of love there. But you're right. She does... When she finds the bullet, she basically tells him that he's wrong. He doesn't. She doesn't ask him how he's feeling, why he's feeling like this, how can I help you? She just tells him that he's wrong and that he should be seeing life as a gift and immortality as a gift. And it, it, it's... Yeah, it, it, it's exactly... It, they're, they're not... She's just projecting how she feels about the world onto him. Mm-hmm rather than under, trying to understand how he feels about the world. Yeah. And a lot of it is she doesn't understand him. She just encourages him and accepts him to a degree. I think his music, yeah, she doesn't really understand his music, but she supports it. And yeah, interestingly enough, I found out that Tilda Swinton, when she was making the film, had a family member who was very sick, I think, I think was dying. Mm. And so she was very much thinking about immortality and... Or mortality and life and death and for her to be playing the one who is positive about life mm. and who is you know loving the idea of going on forever and just soaking up every moment of life and soaking up nature and soaking up people and being you know seeing the world in a nomadic way mm. i think that's so interesting that the character was actually going through a crisis of mortality herself yeah. but playing the one who wasn't i think so she, she said it was sort of very helpful for her. It was the best role for her to be playing at that time. I can imagine being cathartic. It's the idea mm. of like, 
I can re- I can literally perform the way I want to feel, yeah. not how I'm feeling now. Yeah, but also at the same time, probably wishing that people could go on forever. What's this about? Just tell me that you're having trouble with one of the others. Please tell me that. I don't see any others. Ever. Okay. Don't ever fuck around like that. Just playing a part in your story. It's the zombies I'm sick of. And their fear of their own fucking imaginations. My darling, that's true. Meanwhile, just tell me what's so not frightened about that. How can you have lived for so long and still not get it? This self-obsession, it's a waste of living. It could be spent on surviving things, appreciating nature, nurturing kindness and friendship, and dancing. You've been pretty lucky in love, though. If I may say so. One of the main themes with vampirism across everything, there's a lot of vampire films that are romantic, Mm -hmm. uh, vampire novels and films that are romantic, Mm -hmm. in a possessive way, wanting to possess a person and wanting to, you know, claim them in in a very sexual yeah. Whereas a lot of traditional vampire stories, which this feels more like, the vampirism is not so much about seduction and, and lust. It's about not wanting to let go of things. Mm. Anne Rice's vampires, again, whenever they turn someone, it's because they want to keep them. Yeah. And they can't let go of them. It's not a sexual thing, it's a possessive thing. Mm. Lestat turns his mother when she's dying because he can't bear for her to die. It's like, no, I'm not accepting it. I can't have her die. Turns her and keeps her young. And of course, as soon as she's young, she then flies to the nest again and leaves him to it. But it's about not being able to let go. He turns his best friend from from childhood. He turns his mother into a vampire. So this film feels very much on that same vein. It's about not wanting to let go and keeping someone with you and keeping things with you. And, and it's all about that, yeah, like keeping the old things with you, keeping people and, yeah, refusing to let things go. And that's, it's a very traditional vampirism metaphor in that way. And just to click back onto that, mm. when Ava drank Ian, one of the things drank that Adam says Ian. is like, why didn't you, <laughs> why didn't she turn him? Yeah. So the idea she, is like, let him go. He's, she's, she basically saw him as a snack. Quite literally. Yeah. Um, so, you know, she saw him as a snack while everyone else is saying like, especially at the end when Adam and Eve are actually going to do this again, it's like, we are going to turn them, right? Yeah. Like we are going to keep, we're going to keep them alive. We're not going to kill them. We're not going to get yes. rid of them. You know, when they're, when they're looking at this beautiful couple making out, they're saying like, if we're going to do this, are we going to keep them alive? Yeah. While, while, while Ava just kind of goes, no, I'm hungry. You're here. I'm just going to eat you. So in many ways, vampirism is kind of about denial. It's about denying death. And, and which is, again, I think a reason probably Tilda Swinton wanted to do this film is like, death doesn't happen. Yeah. Not accepting it. Not, and in many ways, it's kind of like, vampirism is like when children step on bugs for the first time and then they cry because the bug is gone. Yeah. It's not accepting. It's just put it back together. And it's very much, there's a lot of, yeah, a lot of vampire novels where it's about refusing to let someone die, refusing to accept mortality, refusing to accept the meaning of life Mm. by clinging on and keeping it together and and carrying it with you always. Mm. And that is what vampirism kind of means in all of these things. And it's the idea of like, and so he would have wanted to keep Ian in the same way that he keeps all this technology going that is even his, the way he powers his house, which you know, Eve congratulates him for building this way of powering his house. It's all like clockwork. But really, he could just 
plug in his house to the system. You know, he's determined to keep stuff going even when he shouldn't. Mm. And maybe they're keeping their relationship going when they shouldn't. And, and the vampirism is keeping them together. I like about it is um, there's loads of references to everything in here like you've got mm. mentioned the guitars music there is a lot of wonderful music in this but very yes. it's very Jim Jarmusch is music taste yes. it's hard to describe like if, unless you've seen a Jim Jarmusch movie you can't you can't you can't say like I can't go and say hey this music taste is very Jim Jarmusch but it is the film is a love note to music I mean Adam himself himself is designed to look like a character from from uh, Pink Floyd I think yeah and there's lots of scenes where the camera is spinning or the character is spinning and mm. it's intercut with shots of records and yeah and I, I saw a beautiful moment on the behind-the-scenes documentary where it was clear that Jim Jarmusch was, was directing the actors like he was writing a score. Like, because he says to uh, Tilda Swinton, he says, OK, you are the guide track in this film. You set the pace. And when, when, when Tom comes in, he is the supporting note. You are the guide track. And he actually gave her that note, and it's literally like he's composing. Like she, she's the bass note, and yeah. And Tom Hiddleston's character is like, you know, the supporting flute or something. But it, it's so rhythmic, and he, mm. he he's composing as much as he's filmmaking. Yeah, which which makes a bit of sense when it comes to the pacing of this movie mm. and how things are edited and how things are spliced and how things are directed because it goes through sort of up and down beats but almost as if it's like like an album would you know an album yes. you've got like a really strong start you've got some really cool big starts some interesting bits it develops over time you get some middle tracks you get some high drama and it ends with a banger right it's almost a musical in that weird way it's it's rhythmic like a musical but it is a somber somewhat depressing vampire movie instead i think he definitely put himself into adam and his love of music is mm. very much shown through there it's just a bit to the max with, with, with adam and the way he collects music and and and, and different kinds of music and, and instruments and vinyl and everything but you definitely get the feeling that the way he laments the modern day and the way he laments modern music is very much how Jim Jarmusch sees the world and the whole it's not just the music it's the entire everything around him mm. the streets the streets are rotten there's so many shots of buildings that are boarded up yeah. That clearly used to be beautiful. And I can't remember where I heard this, but it was somewhere on the making of, I think, where um, it, Detroit was described as a time lapse. Yeah. I feel that might have been one of Adam's lines. It feels like a time lapse where you see like a rose bloom and then it deteriorates again. And that's what Detroit looks like to him. And that's why he loves Detroit. There's a great scene where he takes Eve Driving. to see the, yeah, to see the theatre, to see his old beautiful theatre that's really rotten but clearly used to be beautiful and grand and was a movie theatre and is now a car park. And the way the camera pans down to the cars, again, it's kind of humorous, but mm. it's also... It's about it's about old things in the modern world. And, yeah. and, and it says that in the visuals and it says that in the character. And it's very similar in a way to Ghost Dog because Ghost mm. Dog is about old values. It's about men who believe they are samurai not really fitting in and, and disliking the modern crime bosses and trying to live in an old way and being reclusive. Mm. So it's a similar kind of theme across the two films of, of old souls in a modern world. The problem is when if the, when the old keeps going and no one mm. either takes care of it or loves it anymore or moves on, it's just an empty husk. And that's what most of Detroit is. One of my favourite lines of the movie is when Eve goes, with, when they're driving and Eve goes, so this is your wilderness. As in the idea, yeah. this is your, like for Eve, 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 Eve loves nature. So she would run out. She would be the woman who'd run out into the forest and just enjoy that. While for Adam is like, no, this is your forest, isn't it? This abandoned sense of decay almost. So this is your wilderness, Detroit. Everybody left. What's that? It's the Packard plant, where they once built the most beautiful cars in the world. Finished. But this place will rise again. Will it? 
Yeah. There's water here. When the cities in the south are burning, this place will bloom. about like just quickly about the design of the film i yes. think is probably the strong point of the film that immediately draws anyone to it is this is one of the most beautiful looking films that's been made in the last like decades mm. it's just stunning the costume design i mean the costume design is eve's almost always in white adam's almost always in black and it's not just yin yang apparently they're supposed to represent the sun and, and the moon yeah and eve is a sun and adam is a moon which is super super cool but the sets, as we've said, Adam is a hoarder. He has too much stuff that is holding him back and he won't let go of. And it's kind of a, you know, a, a lesson to everyone of not to be like that in a way, <laughs> not to hoard and not to get yeah. obsessed with your stuff. But the stuff is beautiful. The instruments he has are beautiful. The set is absolutely, every single inch is covered in stuff. Mm. Every wall is covered in picture frames, every or, or, or mountains of CDs and vinyl and technology. And from a, I used to do production design, the more like stuff on set, the harder it is to work with. It yeah. is, the continuity is a nightmare because there's so many little bits, of, you know, and if you trip over one bit, you can screw everything up. Mm. So... It is one of the most complicated sets I've ever seen. And usually on a bigger budget film, if you had a massive set, you would stick it all together and be able to move stuff in and out of shot like as, as modules. Yeah. Or you could make the space look tighter than it is by, you know, removing an entire wall. And that's a really geeky technical thing. But because this was a very, very low budget film, they didn't have that luxury. It actually was a tiny, tiny room. Mm. It wasn't a big room made to look small through clever moving of set pieces. It was tiny. And I've seen, again, on the, on the behind the scenes, the actors getting frustrated. Like Tom Hiddleston's trying to get in and he says, well, there's a bureau in the way and there's a lamp and I can't, I can't get around this. I can't be moved. I can't move. I can't get to, I can't get to Tilda because of all this stuff. So rather than the magic of cinema of it looks cluttered, but it's just, you know, you can actually move cameras around. They could barely get the kit in. The camera they use is quite small. Mm. So the, the attention to detail with the design is incredible, but also... The stamina of the cast and the crew working in a teeny tiny cramped little space yeah. to get all the shots they did. Like I said, they couldn't just move walls out of the way. It's not that kind of a budget. Mm. They literally just had to squeeze in with big, big teams of people and be like, don't tread on all the records on the floor. And yeah, I just think that attention to detail is worth applauding. It is so complicated and yeah, another good example recently was the recent Ghostbusters film had a very, very, very busy set, and that was another one that is just a beautiful, beautiful set to look at that's full of stuff. So, that's, <laughs> so basically, out of all that, basically, if you want a good-looking movie, fill it with stuff. But <laughs> fill it with stuff, but, it, but make sure you have the budget to move your walls when you need to get the camera in, otherwise your actor will get very frustrated <laughs> because he cannot move past the damn bureau. Yeah, <laughs> well, uh, well, everyone learn that, everybody. <laughs> So, um, so before we wrap up, um, I like usually ending these with uh, with with something known as the elevator pitch. So, very simply, oh, if we God. were going to introduce this movie to someone who's never seen it before in a couple of sentences, how would we do it? It's a love note to life and nostalgia and music, but with vampirism, I suppose, is how I would do it. Just go see it because Tilda Swinton's in it. It's my other one I would always do. <laughs> just end the movie. Oh, by the way, Tilda Swinton's in it. Just go yeah. watch that, please. Just go see it. But you know what? That's actually perfect. Um, it sums it up everything. It's life. It's it's life. It's love. It's rock and roll. It's... it's... Crane shots to die for. <laughs> Indeed. My goodness. <laughs> I'll just say thank you very much for, have, for having on. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, thank you for having me. It was good to talk about this film again, yeah, because we had such a good time seeing it on our <laughs> sofa with neck ache. But yeah. uh, you know, it was it was great. To, yeah, great to come back and watch it again.
And so that is the end of our review of Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive. And thank you for coming along with us. This was one of the more fascinating deep dives I think we've had on the show so far. It was awesome to share our ideas on this beautiful and complex film. What did you think? Do you have a different view to myself and Sophie? Please feel free to write your interpretation of the film on our social media and share this episode with other vampire lovers. We would love to hear from you all. And with that, this film essay is closed. And we'll return soon for another not-so-trash review. See you all next time, cinephiles. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode and hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it around with movie lovers you know, maybe add a star rating or write a good review. All of this helps with the algorithm and provides us with more opportunities to reach the ears to a whole new bunch of bad film fanatics. Want to find out more about us? Then head over to our socials where we provide sneak peeks and up-to-date news on everything nostalgic and trashy. You can find our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages in the description. So please, follow us. See you next time, cinephiles. Cinephiles.